you know, each of these topics that we're talking about, uh, when we break it down into faith, repentance, lordship, salvation, uh, eternal security, assurance, I have, a, I have a talk on each one of these. So you understand I'm really summarizing each of the views. But pretty much you can find each of these topics addressed in something I've written, but especially that blue book called Simply by Grace, it kind of breaks it down into those topics and follows the sequence I'm following in this talk. So that's kind of in book form. Uh, what it means to have a free grace perspective uh, of what I'm talking about today is best re- reflected in the book Simply by Grace, that smaller blue book out there. Um, well, that would be um, self-promotion. and nah, I'll tell you what's out there. It's just, um, first of all, if you want to know about what's going on in the ministry and uh, follow us, uh, you, you tell us where to send the newsletter, write your name down there, and we'll, we'll send that to you. And one of the best things about the newsletter that people appreciate it is it's not just the news about the, the ministry, but it has a Bible study in each one called Grace Notes. It's on black and white, and it's got even holes punched in it. And you can copy that and give it, use it in Bible studies in Sunday school classrooms. That's a very, very popular, has become a very, very popular feature. You can also get those online at gracelife.org and download them. And you've already got my permission to use them freely, copy them. Just don't sell them or else I want part of the money. But that has, the most popular visited place on our website is the Grace Notes and um, those Bible studies that we do. They always relate to salvation uh, or grace or something, sanctification. On the wall. Hmm. Good darts in them? No. Um, then there's the book on Lordship Salvation has already been mentioned. That's actually a doctoral dissertation. Uh, the blue book is uh, Introduction to Grace. Um, and uh, it, whether you're a Christian that already has a free grace perspective, it helps you, I think, understand more clearly what it is. But also if you, it's used a lot by people who are trying to win others to our perspective, and they, they give it out as gifts. One church gave out, is giving out 500 copies, I think, last weekend or this weekend. And uh, people sometimes give it out at Christmas as a gift uh, because it helps introduce people, uh, not assuming anything, but just helps introduce people to free grace in in the simplest language I could find. And then there's the book Freely by His Grace, which is not actually a Grace Life publication, but I have a chapter in it, so I'm carrying that book. And it's just out only a few weeks. We unveiled it a few weeks ago. And um, then there's the workbook Living in the Family Grace, which is a large green workbook that actually you can take people in classes or one-on-one or a group of people, take them through that. And that grounds people in grace. It goes basically goes through the book of Romans, which I believe is, I could spend a whole lot of time talking about this, but I believe Romans was written to ground people in, the, in grace in the Christian life and takes people through that and then also through the conditions of discipleship at the end. And so it's a very good discipling tool, and churches have used that for new members and new member classes and Sunday school classes and women's groups, men's groups, and all kinds of things. Then I got two booklets out there. I mentioned the Dear John booklet, which talks about the condition for salvation in John, and then there's the book How to Share the Gospel Clearly, which talks about how to clarify our message so that we're not stumbling over a bunch of confusing terms when we present the gospel. And I think that's all that's out there. So, Okay, so what about, uh, we've talked about grace in salvation, but what about grace in the Christian life? Uh, it's important to get off to a good start. First of all, that's why part one preceded part two. Because if we don't have a clear understanding of grace when it comes to our salvation, I guarantee you there's going to be some place in the Christian life where you're going to get tripped up and the trajectory is going to be wrong. So when we talk about grace in the Christian life, uh, 
uh, we want to talk about how it applies to us today in certain issues. And, and the first one we would address is assurance, and we've already mentioned that some. But um, it's based on God's Word and not our performance. Whereas many gospel presentations when that put our performance in there tell, tell us we need to surrender, commit, obey, persevere, uh, it's always going to be based on our performance, and that essentially robs us of an absolute assurance of our salvation. The only way we can be surely, absolutely sure we are saved if, it's, if it is based on God's performance and not ours. I mean, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the covenants that God made. For example, with Abraham, where he says, I will, I will, I will, I will bless you. It doesn't depend, Abraham, on your performance. And then in, in, with David, the same way. Thank God it didn't depend on David's performance, right? And then it didn't depend on, uh, and so it doesn't depend on our performance, it's right through the Bible. The whole Bible is written on the fact that God has made covenants with us and promises to us that are based on his word and his, what he has done for us and not what we have to do for ourselves. First um, John 5.13, probably the best known verse on assurance. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may hope. No, not hope, not guess. But know that you have eternal life. And the word know there means no. I had a Jehovah's Witness in my living room. I invite them in sometimes to argue with them. And um, she was talking to my wife and I and wife and me. And she said, um, oh, that word know there doesn't mean no. It just means hope. And she didn't know I was a pastor. I didn't tip my hand yet. So I said, well, let me get my Greek Testament and check that. So. I said, no, the word is oida, and it means no, just to know something as a fact. And she said, hmm, would you teach me Greek? <laughs> All the places I've been speaking and teaching, no Christian has ever asked me to teach them Greek. Just a Jehovah's Witness. Isn't that interesting? It means to know, and that's all it means. God wants us to know just as much as you want your children to know that they are your children. What parent would want his or her child to guess that he or she is in the family and belongs to you? Absolutely. Wouldn't that be? A sh is that any condition for growth, a healthy relationship or healthy growth or healthy self-image? If they had to always wonder if they had your love and acceptance? Of course not. Of course not. And so assurance is essential to a healthy Christian life. I like to say that you can't grow forwards if you're always looking backwards. If you're always wondering whether you're saved or not, you can't grow forward. You have to know that God has accepted you and settle that once and for all, and then you can go forward. And, uh, you know, I struggled with this for some time at the beginning of my salvation uh, because I was reading literature from all over the place that told me I had to do this and this and this and this. And I described my little journey in my book, the blue book. But when I came to the point where I said, we well, you know, God said it, and I either believe it or don't. I believe it, God, I'm saved, I don't know what else to do, that's it. And when I came to that final conviction, then uh, I've never looked back. I've, somebody asked me the other day, have you ever doubted your salvation? I said, not since I settled that at the age of 19. And I just, I said, God, I have nowhere else to go. I don't listen to my feelings. I don't listen to uh, theologies. I just, your word says, if I believe in you for eternal life, I have it. And I haven't, I, I, I'm not bragging, I, maybe it's not your case, I've not looked back, I've not doubted my salvation ever. And um, 
So it depends on God's word, not our experience and not our feelings, not anything subjective, but all that's objective. And that's important because there, there's the other views out there. And the other views say, well, you can't, you shouldn't assume that. Uh, that that'd make you proud, you know. Uh, or there's a view that says, well, you really should examine yourself every now and then. Doubts are good for Christians. Is it good for your child to doubt that you love them or that you've accepted them? When can you ever name a situation where your child would doubt your love and acceptance? I can't think of one. Isn't God a better father than we are, parents? I would think so. So, uh, and they use certain passages that we could explain and go into, but, uh, you know, the healthiest position and foundation for the Christian life is an assurance that's based on God's word that gets us off to the best start. And that only comes by grace. Because we can know that God has done something for us, but we can never know if it depends on me how much I have to do. So this brings us into the area of the whole motivation for Christian, living the Christian life. In other words, we could say, why be good? Why then should we serve God or why should we live a good and godly life? And um, grace teaches us, if since it all depended on God, then we should live a life out of gratitude. Our life should be a great big thank you to God for what he's done for us. Not out of guilt that we've never done enough. Because it doesn't depend on what we do. It depends on what God has done. So we should live a life of gratitude, not guilt. I put Romans 12, verse 1 there because Romans is an interesting book. It's really wonderful in the way it's laid out. It's a progressive argument. In the first 11 chapters, Paul is talking about what God has done for us in our salvation and how that includes what he's done for the Jews, chapters 9 through 11, but chapters 1 through 11, what God has done for us. You know, the interesting thing about those chapters is he doesn't say what we should do for God. 11 chapters. Can you imagine Scott preaching a sermon of 11 chapters of Romans or 11 sermons and not ever saying what you should do? Most preachers start with a list of things to do, don't they? Paul started with a list of things God did for us. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now, or he says, therefore, looking back, it's a hinge. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything I've just told you for 11 chapters, do what? Present your bodies. Now, here's something you can do for God. Present your bodies, love one another, use your gifts, don't take vengeance, honor your government, pay your taxes. Uh, live at peace with those who disagree on things, bear one another's burdens. He goes right through chapters 12 through 15 telling us what we can do for him based on what God has done for us. So the motivation there is established before he gives us a list. And this is where a lot of our preaching and teaching goes wrong in the church in general is we do hear 11 sermons about what we're supposed to do and now and then what God has done for us. But we should make sure people understand what God has done for them before we tell them what they can do for God. Then their motivation will be right. And somebody who's properly motivated will get the job done, will live for God. But they can't be motivated if they're always wondering if they belong to God or always guilty that they've not done enough. And there's Romans 12, 1 for you. And we sh our motivation should also be for love of God and not our license. In other words, grace teaches us that we love God because he first loved us. And that love is what controls uh, the liberty that he's given to us. And under grace, it says that we are free, but we are not to use that freedom to serve ourselves or to sin, but express our love towards God and one another. Galatians five thirteen through 14. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. 
Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we keep that first and great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, then what are we going to do against God or against our neighbor? We end up fulfilling the whole spirit of the law. And, um, and grace has freed us from the law of Moses, but it has freed us to a life of liberty. And let's be clear that the New Testament also has commands for us. Jesus gave us the command, for example, to love one another and to pay our taxes. So there are commands in the New Testament, but it's not a, a conditional situation like the Mosaic law was. And um, we're to live under law, not license anyway. Um, in um, Bud and Betty's house where I'm staying, there's a sign in the bathroom that's, I don't know if they knew I was coming or what, but it's uh, a quote by Martin Luther, love God and do whatever you want. Love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. Now, that sounds a little scary at first, but when you think about it, if you love God with all your heart, what are you going to want to do? What he wants. Another motivation for Christian living and living a godly life is the judgment seat of Christ. And here we're talking about the judgment that is for all Christians. Now, you understand there are two judgments in the Bible. One is for a judgment of unbelievers who have rejected Christ. For all of us who are believers, that judgment is settled forever. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus was judged in our place. However, all Christians do face another judgment called the judgment seat of Christ, or in the Greek, the Bema seat judgment where we, our works and our life will be evaluated and rewarded according to how we've done. And there's a number of passages, but uh, if we look at Second uh, Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema, that's one word in the Greek language, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Paul says we all, he's talking about Christians, must all give an account to God. Many Christians have the mistaken notion that we get a ticket to heaven and we just wait for our time to be called. And that's not the way it is. We're given a new life and we're to use that life for him. Eternal life begins the moment we believe and the way we use that life and invest that life will, will, will determine what kind of rewards we will have in eternity or what kind of rewards will be denied in eternity. So we will be held accountable for the lives that we hold. And I have more to say about that later. And we're also motivated then by liberty and not legalism. Legalism, we would simply define as doing those things which are not biblical in order to be acceptable to God. There are different kinds of legalism, but basically it's an attitude that if I do this and this and this, God will accept me. But legalism usually leads to pride because it depends on what I can do. It leads to doubt because I've never done enough. It leads to pride because we look at others who are not doing as well as we. Or it leads to guilt because we're not doing as well as others. So legalism is just a deadly system to get into. It kills the person. It kills the church. And um, instead we want to live in our liberty. Galatians 5.1 is a warning to the Galatians. We're tempted to go back under the law. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. 
It's very, it was very tempting for these Jews to go back into Judaism because they had the security of somebody telling them what to do. Judaism governed every aspect of life. And, uh, and then the rabbis had thrown thousands more commandments on top of the law, 613 commandments, that governed every aspect of life. And suddenly, they, Paul says, you're free. You don't have to listen to that anymore. Well, that's kind of scary, you know, for a child that grows up in your household to be told how to dress, how to eat, what schedule to keep. And suddenly you say, you're free. That's a little disoriented for a child also. Unless we give them some principles to live by, well, you know, free, but always use your time responsibly, always do everything to love one another, always, you know, be positive and, you know, yeah, I mean, there's, and so that's what grace does. It gives us these principles to live by. Uh, love of God and love of neighbor is enough to control our behavior. And that's why he says later in the chapter, that's the way to live under liberty. In fact, if you look at this little diagram, we're to live in liberty, but uh, that liberty is to be controlled or balanced by love. That's the, the fulcrum that balances out a life to make sure that we don't go into license or we don't go into legalism. The one extreme of license, we do whatever we want. The one extreme of legalism, do what other people think we should do, perhaps, is balanced by love. Let's do what God wants us to do because we love him. Here, we even have animation on this one. Another issue in um, our Christian lives and how grace applies to it is uh, addresses the issue of discipleship and what is a disciple. And the question is out there in the different views are there are some views that teach every Christian is as a disciple, and in other words, disciples are born, not made. Now, the free grace position says that disciples are made, not born. In other words, that there are Christians who are not disciples, who are not actively following uh, God's will in a very committed level. Um, one of the problems we have with those who think every Christian is a disciple um, is that discipleship conditions in the New Testament are taken and made conditions for salvation. Let's take, for example, since it's very compact, Luke 9.23 Whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Three conditions there. Deny myself means I must say no to myself to say yes to God. So in order to, if this is applied to salvation, I have to say no to my every desire, every ambition, and say yes to God in order to be saved. Take up your cross. This would say that if I'm going to become a Christian, I need to be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ, even to die for him, or I can't be saved. Luke even says it the more severely, he says, daily, take up your cross daily. So every day I have to be willing to die for Jesus Christ or I can't be saved. The third one is he says, follow me. This means I need to give up my life and follow him wherever he leads me and adopt his purpose for my life or I can't be a Christian. But was Jesus giving conditions for salvation or for discipleship? He's telling conditions for discipleship. Who is he saying it to? He was saying it to his disciples who had already believed in him. You see? And so when you look at these conditions for discipleship, which are in the, the last seven chapters of my green book, um, Living in the Family of Grace, you'll see that the, con the context is almost always he's talking to his disciples who are already saved, challenging them to become more of a disciple. And so as we progress in the Christian life, there's always another level that God challenges us to grow into. Think about Luke chapter 21. After Peter had denied the Lord, Peter had definitely believed by John 2, 
And he expressed that in John 6. I, I, we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And then he denies Christ. John 18, is it? But then in John 21, after the resurrection, and Jesus forgives him, you remember, and restores him. And he tells him how he's going to die. And Peter and John are walking with Jesus. And after Peter hears how he's going to die, he looks at John and he says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You follow me. In other words, discipleship for you, Peter, now means that you don't worry about other people and how they're going to die and serve me. You just worry about yourself and follow me. So Peter, even at the end of his time with Jesus, was told to be more of a disciple. So discipleship is a progressive thing. Salvation is an instantaneous thing. In fact, let's chart it like this. If we were to use theological terms, salvation just, uh, addresses our justification, an instantaneous event. Whereas discipleship addresses our sanctification, which is a lifetime process. Salvation is faith alone. Discipleship depends on our obedience. The only condition for salvation is believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The conditions for discipleship are obedience. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Abide in my word. uh, Serve. Give up all you possess. Many conditions. Salvation is a single condition. Discipleship is multiple conditions. Salvation is an instantaneous event, and discipleship is a lifetime process. You want want me to make it real simple for you? This is is why you got out of bed on a Saturday morning and came to church. This is the reason. To learn this, this distinction here. And to think of it in this way. You have A truth and B truth. A truth is truth that relates to salvation Getting saved, be truth is truth that relates to our Christian lives and how we live it. Isn't that simple? A truth and B truth. And if you can see these difficult passages and apply this little model to them, you will understand many more passages in, in like in the Gospels, for example. Is, is Jesus talking about A truth, how to be saved, or is he talking about B truth, how to be more of a disciple? Try it on some of these passages. And, um, yeah, 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 I think it does depend on the audience, always uh, the context. Exactly, you have to pay attention to who Jesus is directing his comments to. Like John eight thirty one. he said to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you will be my disciples indeed. So is he telling people how to be saved by abiding in his word? Some people say he is. But it says, he says to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed. He's telling believers a truth that if you really want to be my disciples, serious disciples indeed, he calls them, then you'll remain in my word or abide in my word, which means to be in that close, obedient relationship to his word. So you have a truth and be truth right there in John 8, 31. Okay. The Christian life or life under grace also has to do um, uh, account, account for accountability be, to be redundant. In other words, we have to give an account for ourselves and our faithfulness as we have lived the Christian life. Now, here's the thing is that many people who have the other views say that when we teach free grace, we're giving people a license to sin or a license to do whatever they want to and no motivation to serve God at all. 
And I'm glad they say that when they hear my message because they accuse Paul of the same thing. So that makes me believe I'm teaching the same thing that Paul taught. You remember in Romans chapter 6, the objector says, well, if, if we're not under uh, the law but under grace, that means that we can continue to sin? And pretty much the same objection, very similar objections in chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 15. And what does Paul say to both of them? He says, absolutely not. And his reasoning there is that you have a new master, you have a new identity, and there are consequences to sin. So there are consequences to sin. We're not teaching that people can free sin freely and get away with it. We're, we're saying that uh, God requires faithfulness and he rewards faithfulness. And we'll look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 14. Here it talks about a positive reward for those who are faithful, uh, and it will also see something negative. But let's look at it. Paul's saying, if anyone builds on this foundation, he's talking about that he laid the foundation, which is Christ Jesus in the previous verse. But if someone builds on it with gold, silver, precious stones, those are good things, wood, hay, and straw, those are inferior things, each one's work will become clear. For the day, I think that speaks of the day of Christ's coming and the rapture, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. So what's being evaluated here? Works, very clearly, three times in the passage. Not salvation, but works. And he's talking about those who build on the foundation of Jesus Christ in a worthy way or an unworthy way. A worthy way would be with good works, but also good motives. An unworthy way could be with good works, but bad motives. And so God's going to sort it all out on that day because only he's the one that can. He's going to sort it out on that day. Did we do the right things for the right reasons or not? And we'll be rewarded accordingly. We will receive a reward. We will be held accountable for our faithfulness. And there are many other passages that speak of uh, the judgment seat of Christ. You might jot down 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. And you can jot down Romans 14, verse 10. Those explicitly mention the judgment seat of Christ. But there are many, many other passages that refer to it in some other way, less direct way. So we will also be judged for our unfaithfulness at this judgment seat of Christ. That comes up in this passage as well. See, he not only says that we will receive a reward if we've built on it in a worthy way, but if anyone's work is burned, now that implies the wood, hay, and straw because gold, silver, and precious stones can't be burned, but the fire would burn up wood, hay, and straw. And if your work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there will be some loss at the judgment seat of Christ when the things that we have done were not worthy of him or the motives that we had for doing them were not worthy. It will just disappear, burned up. And that will be our loss. We've, our time and everything that was invested in that will be lost. But that believer will be saved because he says at the end, yet he will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, the fire will test our works, but we'll come out on the other end if we're believers, still believers. Okay? Speaks for the security of the believer, by the way. So there are some Christians who are storing up treasures in heaven. They'll receive their reward. There are some Christians who are doing things that might look good, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. 
That day will burn it all up. They go on to heaven with their eyebrows singed, their hair smoking. But they made it. Like a man running out of the, his house burning down in the middle of the night, and he's in his boxer shorts. He smells like smoke, but he made it. You didn't know there'd be secondhand smoke in heaven, did you? You thought you'd get away from it. <laughs> There's going to be secondhand smoke in heaven. So our works are judged and they're rewarded or the reward may be denied. Now the question is, what are the rewards and what is it? What kind of regret is it? Those are things I'm not real clear about. Uh, the scriptures are not real clear about. It does speak of some shame, the possibility of shame and regret. How long does it last? I'm not sure. I don't think it lasts for eternity. But uh, we can be ashamed at his coming and we can re- we'll have some kind of regret that we're not getting the full reward that he wanted for us. I'm not sure about uh, those things. Uh, but it's there. It's definitely there, Mark. <laughs> How do we sort through all that? Well, look at First Corinthians four five. I like to go to that passage. <clears throat> because when it comes to that, how do we sort through? Because sometimes I don't even know that I did things for the right reason. You know, and I question my own motives many times in the ministry, and and you do too. You know, why are you doing it? Because the church expects you to, the pastor expects you to, or are you doing it really because you love the person? But, yeah, I'm glad that I don't have to sort through that, and that Jesus, or God, is our judge. And First Corinthians four, verse five, Paul says pretty much the same thing because the the Corinthians, he was being attacked by his enemies, and criticized, in by to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were also now starting to buy into these arguments against Paul, and he had to defend himself. But here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He says, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. That speaks of that day, okay, judgment seat of Christ. Listen to this. Then each one's praise will come from God. Uh, Then God will settle the accounts. That's not the verse I really wanted to go to. I wanted you to look at verse 3. Uh, he says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. And then he goes in to say that God's going to settle the accounts. But what he's saying to the Corinthians, he says, look, I don't care what others say about me. I don't even care about how I judge myself. The only judgment that really counts is what God figures out at the end. I like that because I can't figure myself out sometimes, and I certainly can't figure you out. We're going to let God settle it all in the end, and he'll be fair. So I love that passage if you take verse 3 through 5 together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Looking at other, you don't listen, it's an encouragement not to look at other people and judge them. In fact, Romans 14 is the big chapter on that. Um, you know, why do you judge your brother? You, you must stand before the Lord. We have each give an account of ourselves before the judgment seat of Christ. And before God, he will stand or fall. So, you know, you get all upset about somebody else's behavior. Hey, God can handle it. Let's <laughs> leave it up to God. I mean, we have a responsibility to that person uh, to say the right things and to treat them the right way. But after that, you know, he's got to stand or fall before God and give an account for his own life. Discipline then becomes an important part of the free grace message. Discipline is God's 
uh, work of chastening us or treating us and training us as his children. Um, Hebrews chapters 12, verse 3 through 5, is an encouraging word to the Hebrews. Uh, for, for consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. The Hebrews were evidently suffering some kind of persecution that God had allowed, and the author is reminding them that God sometimes disciplines us in order to train us. So don't be discouraged by that. In fact, he goes on to argue that it is actually proof that God loves us because who disciplines us except for our Father? So if, if, you're, if you're at uh, the Walmart down the street and you see a child acting up and spilling stuff off the shelves and you see a man walk by and the man just looks at him and ignores him and goes on, your conclusion is, that's not his dad. If you see a man run up to him and scold his son, your conclusion is, that's his father. He cares for him. So the fact that God disciplines us is actually proof of his love for us. And, and discipline comes in different ways. Um, you can uh, experience discipline through the church. Sometimes the church is called into action to discipline those who misbehave in a, in a public way. Uh, there's temporal discipline or that which is pertaining to this world. Sometimes we suffer consequences in this world because of our behavior. And then there's eternal consequences, uh, the lack of rewards or loss of rewards for eternity. So sometimes we are placed under discipline by God, I think, in this life, and that might mean that we lose our fellowship with God, we lose our joy of our salvation, or maybe God puts us into financial straits or physical straits uh, is conceivable. The Bible does talk about a sin unto death. And I believe that could refer to physical death. Uh, so there are things in this life that can discipline us. But the eternal discipline is that we will lose those rewards. Yeah, Jeff? Um, Matthew 6 is really clear on uh, rewards with your Father Matthew 6 discusses rewards uh, with your Father in heaven. Yes, very good. Good correlate, correlated passage. So... In other words, God doesn't allow his children to run wild. And that's, that's our message from the free grace perspective when we're accused of saying that you're teaching you're saved by grace and you can live under grace and you, don't have, you can't lose your salvation. You're just teaching license. We're saying no. We're saying that God can hold us accountable and discipline us for how we use our lives. So live carefully in, in wisdom and in respect and in faithfulness to God. So what are some of the practical implications of what we've been saying? Uh, we need to reflect grace and truth, just like Jesus did. He was full of grace and truth, John 1, 14 tells us, and we should reflect that. And that begins with the, the assurance of our salvation and the joy that we experience reflects the fact that we appreciate God's grace and the truth of the gospel. Stand fast in liberty. Galatians 5.1, we already looked at. Don't go back into legalism and rules as a way to earn God's favor. Um, don't worry too much about the rules that other people have and want to impose on you because you have to stand before God. And don't go back into legalism, but stand fast in the liberty that you have. Legalism kills. 
And then grow in grace, Second Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. Grace is an amazing thing. We call it amazing grace because we can never fathom the depths of God's grace. We can never fully understand it. I wrote a book called Simply by Grace, which is explaining grace to people. And after I wrote it, I said, who am I to write such a book? I don't even understand God's grace. I'm constantly amazed by it. I constantly see a deeper level of it. And it's like I need to write another book. But that won't cover it all, it all either. You, and that's the wonderful thing about God's grace is we just can't fathom it. We can continue to grow in it no matter where we are.